So we are going to be looking at the last part of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verses 35 to 51. And I'm going to let you know how old I am again, because back in the 70s, <laughs> when I was in, um, well, actually late 70s, when I was in college, um, living in Southern California, they had a campaign, and I don't know if it was out here on the East Coast or not, but do you, was anyone familiar with the I Found It campaign? I Found It. It may have been just a Southern California thing, but it was something that churches were doing, and they were getting volunteers to call through the phone book. I, I'd never, I can't even imagine I did this. Go through the phone book, and you're given a list of names to call, and just to evangelize to them. Hey, do you want to hear about Jesus? Or do you want, I can't even remember what the script was. You know, it was like telemarketing back for Jesus. And that was so outside my comfort zone, I can't tell you. I think I did it just because I had a crush on the pastor's son and I was volunteering. <laughs> but um, I do remember with great, I mean, most of the people would say, no thanks, no thanks. Or, or they'd say something like, I never lost it. And there were bumper stickers and everything. I found it. And just to pique people's curiosity, I'm like, what are you talking about? Fine. What did you find? But as in everything in California, it kind of took a nosedive. But I do remember one person on the phone said, yes, they would like to hear. And yes, they would like to pray with me for Jesus. Now, I don't know if it was a senile person or somebody who was out. But it was like, wow. Um, but anyways... I found it. We're going to talk about that today. I found it. Who finds who? Last week, we saw the shift from John the Baptist, all the focal point on him. He was the talk of the town and everything, and him basically handing off the baton to Jesus. All things that John was talking about was pointing to Jesus. The transition was there. We have the last two verses here, or from 35 to 37. The next day, again, John was standing. He was standing in place with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. What a beautiful picture. John's stationary. He's come to the end of his ministry pretty much. It's the, the whole purpose of it is, is, has been accomplished. His joy is complete. He's standing, and he, there goes Jesus going by, and he's going to take it, and he's going to go with it. To transition. Behold, behold, gaze upon, truly look to see. Who, who is this? And these two disciples, one of them being John, because he never names himself in his, in his book, looking to see and gazing at Jesus, wondering what's happening there. Who is this? Behold, the word encompasses not just look at, but truly look and see. And it usually has some kind of profound sense of joy. Like the first time you see the Grand Canyon, behold, it's like, whoa, it's almost like it, it takes you back a little bit because there's a sense of joy or, or a sense of awe with it. That's what this word means, behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus. John's work is done. 
he, John now must decrease and Jesus must increase, John's joy is complete. This is such a historical moment in, in the cosmos. I mean, him being born, yes, but him now, there he is, starting his ministry to realize that God has entered into humanity. The creator has entered the creation. Infinite has intercepted finite. What's happening with Jesus in the world is truly a phenomenal thing. It's not going to make sense to us. We're not going to be able to grasp it because we're finite. The Bible is, reveals all through it that God is to be infinitely beyond any of our understandings. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how, how inscrutable his ways. Basically, we don't know what he's doing. We can't comprehend it. We, we don't have the ability to comprehend it. So when God, that is just so far above our understanding, intermingles with us, we're going to have some difficulties. We are. God's not, but we are. Those difficulties can be summed up in the, what we would call a paradox. Paradox. Things that seem to contradict each other. There's many paradoxes in Scripture because the divine has intercepted the, um, our world. <clears throat> For instance, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? You know, people, men, right? But then 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God. God wrote it. Well, how do you do that? You know, did he put these people in a trance? How did that happen? We have to scratch our head with that. It was inspired, and yet the personalities of all the writers come through. Jesus himself referred to the Old Testament as the writings of Moses and the prophets. We learned that today in our study. So Jesus was saying Moses and the prophets wrote it. But then the New Testament says all scriptures inspired by God. This is the word of God. Another paradox is this one. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And if you go and you look at that um, in Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 14, where we got the, the plagues and everything, <clears throat> there are 10 times you can count where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's hearts. But there's also 10 times that say, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Paradox. What's going on? The Bible also teaches it is impossible to live the Christian life on our own. We all know that, right? Because we've all tried it foolishly to find out, hey, this isn't working. And yet, the Bible also stresses the responsibility we have not to sin. Paradox. Paradox. 
probably the most difficult paradox, and maybe the one that causes the most division in in churches even, is the paradox of salvation. The balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, I may not answer that. It might not be made clear because, after all, it's a paradox. But at least we're going to look at this this passage today, the rest of chapter 1 of John, and maybe we'll get a little insight onto helping us understand as we grapple with that paradox. The Bible says that people are born spiritually dead. Unbelievers are dead in their sins. We're born hostile toward God. We are unable to please God. The Bible also says in Romans that we have total depravity. We're helpless to live any kind of holy life with a creator. There would be no salvation if without God, unless God provided it because we can't come up with it on our own. We're not going to invent it. We're not going to create it. We're not going to get some philosophy. We're not going to be able to live perfect lives to get salvation. We can't do it. We're that dead and gone and, and helpless. So unless God's going to provide it, we're not going to get it. But the Bible also teaches that no one is saved apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to repent and believe. And it actually condemns, the Bible condemns those who don't repent because it says they are without excuse. Most of the world will say, oh, that's just foolishness. I'm the only, you know, if they can't understand something, what do they do? They call it foolishness and walk away. Most people do that. But the ones we see today are going to be ones that have a curiosity, ones that are going to be a little skeptical and that want to find out what's going on. So we're going to attempt to shed some more insight on that who finds who. Who finds who? Well, we look at verse 38. We can see that John's two disciples, John the Baptist's two disciples, leave him and follow Jesus. 38 says, Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? So Jesus is walking. These two guys are following And Jesus turns around and he sees them. In these passages here, later on today or whenever, next time you read it, look at all the connecting words there are. Seeing, seeking, finding, following. There's there's connections in here with, with divine, with Jesus and with humanity. They're connecting words. And we see a connecting word here. They're following him, but there's no connect them. Once Jesus turns and sees there's a connection, a connection with these two disciples, a connecting the divinity with humanity, and so we're going to have a paradox. And whenever we have paradoxes, we grapple with it, we contemplate it, we think about it, we try to understand it. And Jesus does the perfect thing here is he asks a question of them because he wants them to grapple with whatever is going on. Because at this point, I don't think they know what's going on. And Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? Now, if you have a cool Bible, like I have a cool Bible, and Jesus' words are all in red, right? 
This is actually the first Bible I ever had where Jesus' words were in red. That's why I think it's cool. This is the first red in the Gospel of John. So this is John's first recording of Jesus' words, and he asked them, what are you seeking? He is challenging their motive. They were already followers of John the Baptist, which means they were convicted of their sin. That's why we would hang out with John the Baptist, because he was, repent, repent, repent. But why were they drawn to Jesus? Why did they follow him? And he wanted them to really check their motive. And I think this is where a lot of people get into trouble. And the churches are filled with people that are in this dilemma. That will at the end of time, they will hear from Jesus Well, they'll say to him first, Lord, Lord. And he will say to them, away, I don't know you. But didn't we do this in your name and that in your name and went to church and did this and, you know, all this stuff. But their motive was off for following Jesus. And I think sometimes Christians themselves mislead some people into thinking that they are believers when really they're not. So it's a good question to ask. This is a... course it's a good question because Jesus asks it but it's a good question for all people to think what's your motive why follow Jesus why are we living the Christian life so they're drawn to him the Bible teaches that we are drawn to Jesus and we'll we'll find this out as we get into John we are drawn to Jesus by the Father and convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit That's a paradox. Something about Jesus they were drawn to. The Father, no one comes to, to, Jesus will say, no one comes to me but by the, lest the Father draw him. So that's kind of going on, unknown to these disciples, that the Father has, is drawing them to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the convictor of sin. So they're following him. They don't really know why. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? They didn't quite get it yet that Jesus held the most valuable treasure that there could ever be. (laughs) He had, he was the most sought after, should be the most sought after treasure in the cosmos. But he wanted them to really think about their motive for following. Why were they following? Did they know that he was that great? Did they know that he was the salvation, that he was eternal life, that through him there'd be fellowship with God? Is that what they sought after? There was something about Jesus that they were following. I don't think they really knew that yet because they would have said, oh, we're looking for whatever. But what do they say? And they ask another question. Well, where are you staying? Where are you staying? Now, this is back in the day where they didn't have electric lights. It was getting, the 10th hour was evening. It was time to put all the sheep in the flock and put everything away and button down the hatches in your home and just kind of everyone kind of retire into home. You find shelter. It was that time of day you started to find shelter. Time to wind it down. They didn't have nightlife back then. And so they needed to find shelter in the evening. 
but there was also a desire to, to hang out with Jesus more and to, to have more conversation with him. So they wanted to stay with Jesus, not just go and hang out where they hung out with John the Baptist on those other nights, but they wanted to be with him. John puts in the recorded event of the 10th hour. This is one of those things that give us credence or gives, provides evidence that John was an eyewitness. He gives a, a place, he gives an hour, it's significant. You know, when you're in a court of law, you know, what time did you do that? What was the date of that? And blah, 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 blah. And if you're getting ready to go to court, well, you better write that thing, that stuff down and document it and everything like that because you won't be able to recall it later. John knows the 10th hour. And I think there's another reason why it sticks in his head so much. Because this is the day of his salvation. I really think so. This is where the day where he said, yes, yes, the day he got saved, the day of his salvation Jesus invites them, come and you will see, he says. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. It was about the 10th hour. That's John's salvation in Andrews. They received more than shelter from the night that night. They received shelter for eternity. So, verse 40, well, before I go, yeah, verse 40. Um, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here they are, these two disciples have found the Messiah. They are believers in Jesus Christ now. And he goes and he finds his brother, Simon, and says to him, We have found the Messiah. The Messiah. We have found him. Who found who? Well, at this point, John believes that they, John and Andrew, they found him. The Messiah, the anointed one. The one who was prophesied, the coming one, the expected one. God's anointed deliverer and king. They discovered the Christ. They found him. Messiah, that's his mission, that's his purpose in life, and to intervene into our world, to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer. Did they discover the Christ? Or did they discover the Christ because he was revealed to them? See where I'm going with this? You've got to bring the two worlds together. Sovereignty of God and the humanity responsibility. They discovered the Christ because he was revealed to him. Think back on Easter egg hunts. Easter egg hunts, you get there and mom goes out or grandma goes out or someone goes out and hides all the eggs. And then all the little kids come and they don't know where the eggs are. But we know where the eggs are, right? And sometimes we even help them like, <coughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to do but point to it because they don't get it. And they try to point to it before their big brother comes and snatches it away, right? But it's kind of an idea like that. God the Father knows who he's calling and drawing to Christ, but they don't. We don't. He was revealed to them who Christ was. And we'll, use, we'll see that later in the Gospel of John also. Andrew is filled with such excitement. 
He is doing what John the Baptist was doing. Remember last week we talked about John the Baptist was a herald. He heralded good news and he was a witness. Here's Andrew telling the good news. And the first one he goes to is his brothers with just a great excitement and witness because he had just spent time with Jesus, listening to him. He stayed with him. He was an eyewitness to this is the Messiah. And he couldn't wait to tell somebody. And so we have... Jesus encountering with, with Peter here in 42. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, and here's our connector word. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is significant because Jesus looks at him, they meet, they look at each other, they, they find each other, whatever, however you want to look at it that way. There's a connection there. And Jesus sees in this man, he sees what he's going to do with him. He sees, Jesus sees how he is going to transform this man's life into Peter, a, a part of the foundation that, the, that the, one of the apostles um, laying it out. He could see that ahead of time. Jesus knows past. We're going to find that out, but we also know that Jesus can see how he's going to transform Peter. An interesting thing I want to point out to you guys here, sometimes things are lost in the translation. So if you ever get a chance to read plural, parallel translations, do it. Um, because the King James Version has in the, the parallel passage of this, Luke 6, 14. King James, it says, Simon, whom he also named Peter, lets us know that he sometimes called him Peter and sometimes he called him Simon. And we're going to see that as we go through this gospel, that when Jesus is dealing with Peter, he calls him Simon, and usually when he's referring to him as, as Simon, he's in more of his sinful human mindset. And when he's using Peter, that's the one he's transforming him into. And sometimes he's Simon Peter. So that King James Version where it says he also named him was kind of going back and forth. And we find ourselves like that. Sometimes we're in the flesh and sometimes we're more in the spirit controlled. But who finds who here? Who is finding who? Let's look at our last guy here. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. It wasn't one of those things, like sometimes we'll wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's drive, let's go out to the beach. My husband says, you're crazy, it takes too long to go to the beach. Let's do this. Yes, whatever. Let's do something fun today. Spur of the moment. This is not what that word means. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He purposed to go there. He, we are going there. It wasn't just a, uh, an option. He purposed to go to Galilee. Why? He found Philip and said to him, follow me. The finding Philip, the talking to Philip, gives us the, I think, the assumption that they were face-to-face, -face, talking, connecting with that. 
This is an easy one. He's just there. He's connected with the Savior, and he says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. And what does Philip do? Philip Okay, hang on. Now, Philip was from Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, he finds Nathanael and he says to him, we have found, again, who found who, because Jesus purposed to go there and found him, right? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael is pointing out that the humanity side of Jesus, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament, Jesus is the son of Nazareth, where they named usually someone after their hometown you were from, where your father was from. If you know, I wouldn't be from Abingdon, Virginia. I'm not from Abingdon, Virginia. I live there now, but I'm not from there. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. Anyone from St. Paul, Minnesota? (laughs) No, (laughs) too far from home. So, because that's where my father was born, and that's where I was born. That's, you know, your home. Um, So they're usually identified people from their father's hometown, where they were born. Son of Joseph, even though he wasn't Joseph's son, biological, it was a legal son. So that's how they identified him. So he's pointing out his humanity. Because remember, Jesus is all humanity and all divinity. So... Philip is identifying Jesus' humanity in this. Nathaniel's response to this is right on. Because Nathaniel is, as we studied already, a very well-read Israelite Jew. He knew the scriptures. And he knew the significance of who Moses and the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament. He knew that. It was significant, the expected one, the anointed one, the deliverer was supposed to come. And from Nazareth? Nazareth is an insignificant town. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay? How could someone like the long-anticipated Messiah come from a place that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nathaniel says to him, or Philip says to him, well, come and see. That's one of our connector words, see. Come and see. Verse 47, connector word. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael was probably very taken back from this. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Connector word. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Nathaniel identifies Jesus' divinity. We have him defined as the humanity, son of Joseph, and now right a few verses down, we have him identified as the divine God, son of God, king of Israel. Now, from a human perspective, it was a step of faith for Nathaniel to go with his friend, right? Okay, I'll go and see. But, as, but someone who's inquisitive, someone who probably the father has already drawn him to this maybe, is going to respond, a step of faith. And from a human perspective, Nathaniel came to Jesus through the witness of Philip. That's just on the surface, right? But this conversation that he has with, with Jesus now reveals that he came only because Jesus first sought him. So who finds whom? Jesus saw him when he was under the fig tree. Now I'm going to just close it with this is a significant part of scripture, and maybe some of you have already picked up on this. But from verses 50 to 51 here, well, just a little bit before, is giving us who found who, not just from the human perspective. We already got the human perspective. You know, I, I'm going to bring you to the Messiah, you know, the Savior. Okay, I'll go and see. Yeah, no, my friend brought me there and there. Oh, there he was. I found him. I found Jesus. But this part of passage tells it from Jesus' perspective. And that's, what the, that's the paradox. We've got to pull that side in too. So in verse 50... He says this, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, that's a powerful pay attention, a double word, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If we look deeper into what's going on there, when Jesus calls Nathanael an Israelite with no deceit in them, who was an Israelite that had deceit? If you were with us in our study of Genesis, who was one of the patriarchs who was so deceitful? Jacob. Jacob was the deceiver, wasn't he? He tricked everybody. He deceived people. He just, you know, his mom put him up to some of that stuff, but he learned it well. He was a deceiver. Nathaniel knew that Jacob was a deceiver. Nathaniel was not, a, not one to be deceived, though. He wanted to know the truth. He was skeptic. He wanted to dig down and find out what was going on. He was not like Jacob. And then we look that Jesus found him under a fig tree. Was the fig tree just a place in the shade where he would sit and, and study the word of God? Who knows? Maybe he was reading the Genesis passage where it talks about, you know, Jacob was deceived, you know, deceitful and stuff like that. Maybe he was thinking, maybe that was on his mind. Jesus alludes to him sitting under that fig tree. What else has been under a fig leaf? Man's sin. Genesis 3, 7 we see that it's an attempt to cover our sin under a fig tree. This isn't just any tree. We've got to get into this, ladies and gentlemen. This is significant. It was under a fig tree. Deception. We hide our sin. We can deceive. We can be under. We, we cover it up. 
We hide it. Jesus knows it all. He knows it. We can't, we can't deceive him. He knows what's in our heart. And good old Jacob, the deceiver, in Genesis 28, which we looked at, we have his dream of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending into heaven on this ladder. And now Jesus is making a reference to himself that he is that ladder. He is the access to heaven. He came down, and if you want to go up, he's the one that's going to go up. The link to heaven and earth is Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is no one and there is no, there, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and the man, Christ Jesus. So who finds who? From this passage here with him, we're seeing that Jesus knew all about it ahead of time. He even knew what he was doing under that fig tree. Remember, he's outside of time. So it's a paradox for us. They go together. A paradox seems like they contradict. Do I find Jesus or do I find Jesus because the Father revealed him to me? It doesn't matter as long as we find him, right? When it really comes down to the bottom line of it. So as we look at our own salvation, allow Jesus' perspective on it to alter any self-centered view of salvation. I don't get the credit for being a Christian. There's no one going to boast in heaven that they're there. It's all God. It is total surrender. We didn't have anything to do with it. And the song that Harriet played, I Surrender All, it is a total surrender. Let go of it. There is nothing good in us. We are, we are nothing without Christ and the Holy Spirit in our life. And we are like that because the Father drew us. And when we have that mindset of gratitude with that, it just means so much more. These people are finding Jesus and they're telling people about the greatest treasure there is to found. The world still needs to hear this, still needs to be heralded about. But as we get further away from the cross, we realize, and closer to his second coming, the need to herald the good news is even more and more important. More and more important. Because we have the answer. We know the answer. We know where people can find it. And we don't know who the Father has drawn or who they haven't. It's not us to know. We just let it out there. God, help us to... Help us to herald the good news. Help us to have a curiosity of who you want us to share with, a boldness to, to, and, a, and an excitement about who you are to talk to others about it, God. Help us not to be found falling short of that. So just, I, we, I ask God, we just bring our hearts together and just ask us to give us the boldness to share your good news. In the name of Christ, amen.